Why don't you open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're just going to read some verses from the very end of chapter 4 of Acts, from verse 32. And my focus is going to be today on, on a man called Barnabas. We're going to be looking at the character of Barnabas and just thinking about what we can learn from him. So why don't we read and then we'll dig in. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they'd give, they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Why are we looking at Barnabas? Well, obviously Luke singles him out for some reason here, quite early on in what is a very, very long book. He singles him out because he's going to become a major player in the growth of the church and the mission of the church Um, Remember, this book is just telling the story about how the church just began with a a hundred or more people and then exploded across the known world. And so every character has their part to play, but Barnabas is a very significant person. And Luke wants us to understand that and to see how it all began, where it all began. He won't crop up again until chapter 11, some way down the line. And somehow I think our attention needs to be on this, this fact that there's a connection between how it begins, how Barnabas' story begins, and what he will later become further down the road. And that interests me because we're also in a season of beginning. Um, you know, in terms of church, church life, church sort of life expectancy, this church is just a baby. Some churches live for centuries, some of them for millennia. And we're only nine months old, so we're at the very beginning of something new that's happening here. And when I look around the room and when I pray for you guys and consider who God's brought to be part of this little church, um, I feel full of a, a kind of expectancy, not just for us corporately and what we're doing together, but an expectancy that's conscious of the individuals and people who God's brought into the room and brought to be a part of what we're doing. I feel an enormous um, sense of the potential of what God could do through any one person. And um, that's a potential that I think will be worked out in the life of this church. I think that there will be individuals who will walk with us for um, potentially for decades and be really rooted in what we're doing here. I think there'll be individuals who'll stay for a little short time, but somehow what God does in your life will gear you up and prepare you for something in the future that you might not otherwise have done. I think some of you will be involved in future church plants. I think some of you will be involved in missions. I think some of you will be involved in bringing um, 
God's presence and, and uh, his, the, your passion for the kingdom to bear on the various ways in which he's called you to live out your gifts in the world, whatever that is, not just in church. And so when I look around the room, I think there are people who, like Barnabas, could have extraordinary stories further down the road. And so it interests me, how does this begin? How does a person go on to do great things for God in the way that Barnabas did? And we get a little window here into the very start of his Christian life. And so I see my role partly in terms of what we're doing in forming a community and then growing as disciples together. I see my part in that as something of an agitator. That when people join the church, I hope that they won't remain the same because something will shake them. The word of God and the truth of what they hear, the challenge and the comfort and everything that hits you when you hear um, the word of God and the spirits moving in the community. I see my part as something of an agitator to stir up in you godly desires and passions that hopefully will set you on new trajectories or at least give you more power in what um, you're doing and give you more energy, more momentum with what you're doing what God's given you to do, I should say. And potentially also pull you into what God's doing here in this church. So let's think about Barnabas in that light. We only know three things about him at this stage. That he was a Levite. So the people of Israel were 12 tribes. One of the tribes was distinct among the tribes because they had earned this sort of privileged position of being... Um, the tribe that would serve the rest of the nation in religious duties. They were kind of like the, almost just slightly lower than the priesthood, but they were like um, servants of the people. They didn't own land, but they, they were mingled among the people, and, they, and Barnabas was one of these guys. We know that his name was changed. It says here that it, the, the apostles called him Barnabas, but his actual name was Joseph. His given name was Joseph. And we know that um, he gave with extraordinary generosity to the work of God. So that's the first thing that Luke tells us about what he did. I want us to just think about the second thing just for a moment. Why was his name changed? Because I think in there we have the kind of the key or the access point to what you discover about Barnabas in the rest of the book of Acts. Why was his name changed? And the answer has to do with what, what Luke tells us the meaning is. This word Barnabas is an Aramaic name, but no one's really quite sure what the root of the word um, is, but except that Luke gives us a definition here. He says it means son of encouragement. And this word encouragement um, is, is a word paraklesis. And I, I say that because the Greek word is, ha, has different translations all through your New Testament, depending on where it crops up. Sometimes in the context of suffering... Um, when someone offers paraclesis, it's, it's comfort. It's kind of like um, speaking words of comfort to somebody who's in pain or suffering. Sometimes when someone's struggling with temptation, this word paraclesis means exhortation. So um, if you were wrestling with a sin and you're, 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 um, you're feeling drawn back to the same thing again and again, if somebody came alongside you and, and, and was was a paraclesis, an encourager, they'd be somebody who's exhorting you. Come on. You don't need to give in. God's given you the, the equipment, the power you need to overcome. Or if somebody's afraid, the word means, as we use it in English, encouragement, to literally put courage into someone. 
So if you think, what's the common thread between these different contexts in which the word is used? And I think it's something like this, that it has to do, the, the, literal, word, the literal breakdown of the word paraklesis means to, to, to call out. So I think it has to do with calling out strength in a person. If they're suffering, you're calling out strength in them and so encouraging him in that. If they're struggling with temptation, you're calling out strength for them to resist. If, you, if they are afraid, you're calling out strength for them to carry on and to redouble their efforts and to not give up and to be bold and to be courageous. And so that word, that, that, that kind of gives us a clue as to why Barnabas um, earned this name, why he's called son of encouragement. And I want to show you as we're going to skip around a little bit in the book of Acts, I want to show you um, four things about this man, which ought, every one of them ought to be a deep and profound challenge to us um, about our choices and what we're doing with our lives. But four things which contribute to filling out the picture of why he was called son of encouragement. The first is this. The Barnabas was a, a partner in, in the work of the gospel. He was somebody who, who very much engaged in evangelism and mission and did so deliberately, but particularly as a partner to the Apostle Paul. So when you read on into the story of the book of Acts, what happens is there's a church that, that starts up almost by accident in a place called Antioch because a bunch of Christians flee there. A church crops up in Acts 11. And Barnabas um, goes and he begins teaching, but he knows that, that, that something else needs to happen. They need more help. So he goes and fetches a man called Paul, who's recently become a Christian, and he brings him to Antioch, and they start ministering together. They're like brothers in ministry together. And so for the next few chapters, up to about chapter 15 of of Acts, Paul and Barnabas work side by side in missionary work, beginning in Antioch, but then they travel about 900 to 1,000 miles together across um, the Mediterranean on the first missionary journey which Paul engaged in. He's more famous for it, obviously, but Barnabas was there with him on that first journey. They travel all this distance together. They experience all kinds of hardships together. In Acts chapter 14, it tells us about on one occasion where Paul, in one city called Lystra, he get, Paul gets stoned. So these guys are best mates, and somehow Paul gets entangled in the wrong crowd on the wrong day at the wrong time, and people start stoning him, which is obviously a kind of mob justice, a kind of a lynch mob, I suppose. And the next day, Barnabas um, comes by his side, and instead of saying, we've got to pack this in, he, he picks Paul up, and they carry on. They just carry on until the next city. It's slightly easier for Barnabas to make that call than for Paul, isn't it? But you, some, you get an insight a little bit into w- how this brotherly arrangement works because Barnabas also has suffered himself. Just in the previous chapter, in Acts chapter um, 13, you learn a bit about this. Uh, verse 50, it says that the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. So Barnabas and Paul together journeyed together, preached together, and most importantly, they suffered together for the cause of the gospel. When I think about this relationship, one thing you've just got to realize, by the way, is that this was ordained by the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 13, the Holy Spirit says to the elders of the Antioch church, he says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, for the work to which I've called them. And so they lay hands on them, they send them off on their first missionary journey. 
What I want you to understand about this relationship is that Barnabas is, is a son of encouragement because he's like an armor bearer to Paul. There's never really a question that Paul is kind of the senior in terms of his gift and his teaching ability. Um, later on in the book, um, when they go to one place, they, they think that they're Greek gods because they perform miracles and they call Barnabas Zeus because he's the kind of the quiet one, um, the quiet, strong one, and then they call Paul Hermes, who's the messenger of the God, because he's the one speaking. But obviously, as for us, it gives us an insight that Paul did probably most of the preaching, but Barnabas is there by his side. He's like an armor-bearer. And that expression, armor-bearer, is significant. It comes from, um, in the Bible, it comes from 1 Samuel 14, where there's a story about Jonathan, who is the son of another Saul, King Saul. And when they are in a war against the Philistines, one day Jonathan sees a group of Philistines across a ravine, a garrison of Philistines posted across a ravine. And he thinks to himself, I'm going to take them on. And there's, there's more than 20 of them. And so he's, he turns to his armor bearer. Now he's a son of the king, so he's a very important guy. And he's got a man with him who's a seasoned warrior who's called an armor bearer. And he turns to him and he says, come on, we can go and take them out. In his own words, he says it slightly differently. And the armor bearer says, he replies and says, Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. What a profound picture. Of course, they they climb down and they climb up and they go and rout these Philistines. Now, when I think about what Barnabas is in the book of Acts and why he's called son of encouragement, I think that it has to do with his function in part of being a kind of armor bearer, that he sees the calling upon Paul's life and his own passion for the gospel, and he wants to go and do something for God. In God's work, even today, we need people who will step up to be armor bearers. Paul was very candid about his need in this capacity, in Various places in the New Testament. I mean, he's one of the greatest, most courageous men of God you'll ever read about. But whenever people offered him help, he was deeply grateful. In Philippians 1, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel. He just felt, I can't do this alone. You can read about his the heartache he has in 2 Timothy 4, that people have abandoned him. Now, the reason I draw your attention to this is because there's a challenge in there for all of us. That whatever your call is, all of us can be armor bearers to others. You may not be called to be at the front line, as it were, in terms of the mission and evangelism of the church, though we're all meant to be there in some degree. But we can all be armor bearers. And I think that especially when you, you draw together as a church, it can have the effect of being like those battering rams you see on, on the movies based on like medieval periods where they're trying to take down the gate of a city. It doesn't work if there's just one guy sort of trying to swing this big log or whatever it is they're using. But when you get, when you get 30 or 40 people behind this thing, partnering together, they have an increased power. And I think Barnabas was one of these guys that when the apostles saw him, they saw in him 
Somebody who, who strengthened their work and their ministry. And in fact, he becomes an apostle in his own right later on in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 14, I believe. Do you feel that you have a cause to live for? Do you feel that you have a cause to lay your life down for in this way? Do you feel that there are people you can follow and strengthen, whose ministry you can encourage? Do you look around the room and see people who you want to work alongside? Well, the onus is on you to, like Barnabas, strengthen those around you, to be a son of encouragement. And I say this also just because I think churches work better when we inculcate and foster an atmosphere of encouragement that you praise and delight in every expression of passionate love for God and every expression of devotion to him. So that when you see a guy who's trying his best to um, share what he knows about Jesus with his friends, you encourage that. You pray for him in that. When you see a sister who is, is caring and pastoral in the way she takes care of other people in the church, you are alongside saying, I notice what you're doing. I want to encourage you. This is one way that we can just practically be armor bearers to each other, sons of encouragement, daughters of encouragement to one another. Well, that's the first thing. He partnered in the work of the gospel with Paul, but also with others. Secondly, Barnabas is called a son of encouragement because of his extraordinary boldness and courage. This is something that, um, again, Luke draws our attention to a couple of times. In two places, we, um, we can read these words where we're told about their courage. It says in Acts 13, 45, um, that the crowds that were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what they were talking about. And it says, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. Boldly. So they are... I don't know if you've ever been in, a, in an argument with colleagues or with other people about what you believe. And when people are shouting you down and contradicting you and disagreeing with you, is it your tendency to, to hide and withdraw or is it your tendency to step forward and to be more courageous still? Now Barnabas and Paul were those guys. They spoke out boldly, it says. You get the same thing happening in the next chapter. Now, Boldness is a moral issue. What do I mean? I think that when we think about boldness and courage, I think we tend to think that these are natural proclivities only. So some people are born more outgoing, more courageous, more fearless, and some people are naturally timid and retiring and and fearful. I think there's obviously some truth to that. But when it becomes an excuse for inaction, I think that we have a problem, don't we? Because in the Bible, fear is always regarded as something that's ultimately rooted in a lack of trusting God. And if it's rooted in a lack of trusting God, then in a sense it is a sinful way of life to walk in or to, to sit in your fear and, and not do anything. Do you remember how Jesus told the parable of the servants who were given different amounts of 
talents to deal with, um, amounts of money to go and invest. And one of them, he says, I, w- I was afraid. And I took your money and I buried it. And I did nothing with it. And it's his fear which is the problem here. Are you a person who struggles with fear in your day-to-day life? Or particularly in your, co- your calling, in your calling to be an evangelist and a witness and somebody who carries the gospel of God. I want to put it to you that this is not just a neutral issue, this is a moral issue, something that God is very much interested in in your life. One of the reasons I say that is because, you remember, just after Moses dies, he passes on to a young man called Joshua, he's actually not that young at this point, I think he's probably about 80, but in those terms he seems to be fairly young. And um, one of the first things that God says to him is that in taking on leadership of the people of Israel, he must be courageous. It says in, John, in Joshua 1 verse 6, God speaking to him, it says, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to give their fathers. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all of the law. If God's telling him to be, he's telling him very directly, you must have courage. You must not be afraid. The manner in which you lead must be with boldness. Can you see that if Joshua had been afraid, if he had cowered in fear, it would have been a sin issue. He couldn't have just said, oh Lord, I'm not made up that way. I'm a shy guy. I'm timid. I'm afraid by nature. He couldn't give those excuses. God has told him. And if he then is afraid, what it uproots or unearths is a lack of trust in the living God who's spoken to him. So when coming back to the story of Barnabas, that's what we see here. A man who is deeply courageous. And so in the literal... You know, breakdown of the word in English, he is an encourager. He puts courage into those around him. So Paul and Barnabas go on to do greater things together. Friends, your, your attitude matters in the Christian life. And your degree of confidence in the living God who you serve matters. It is a moral issue. This is why we see when the spies return from looking at the land in, in the in, after when the Israelites were wandering around the wilderness, and ten of them come back and say, there's no chance, we can't, we can't take the land. This was regarded as a problem, as a sin issue for the people of Israel. They were not to give in to fear. And I think it's no different for us today. And I sympathize with anyone who does feel afraid, but we are all called not to express cynicism, not to express doubt, that when God has said, I will build my church... He means it. And we ought to have a steadfast confidence that God is, is going to do what he plans to do. Third thing about Barnabas then. So he was a partner. He was an armor bearer. Second, he was, uh, he was bold and courageous. And the third thing about him, and I, I think this is the one that most fascinates me, is that he is a man who is able to see the potential in, in other people. He's able to look at others and see what other what no one else can see. And I say that because there are two extraordinary stories that tell us a little bit about that. The first one is with Paul or Saul. So Paul is um, 
a rabid persecutor of Christians. And he has an extraordinary experience of Jesus on the road to Damascus where he's heading to go and arrest Christians. And then when he arrives in Damascus, his life is turned around and he begins preaching the gospel instead. But obviously, soon after that, he ends up going to Jerusalem, later in Acts 9. And he immediately encounters a problem, which probably he should have anticipated. But it says in Acts 9, 26, that when he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. He, he tried to go, come along to church, in other words. And it says they were all afraid of him. It's totally unsurprising, isn't it? Because it says they didn't believe that he was disciple. They thought, this guy, is his whole life mission is to find out who the Christians are and then bring them to trial and have them persecuted and, and, and hopefully killed. Just a chapter before, it says, when Stephen was stoned to death, Saul or Paul was stood there giving approval to his death. So that's his ultimate aim. And when he comes along claiming to be a Christian, no one believes that he is a Christian. This is just a ruse. A f- family that we know has been working in Iran for decades now, And they work in particular with the underground church. And the underground church in Iran has been exploding in size. And it's uncontrollable. The government um, has made it illegal to convert to Christianity from a Muslim background. Um, And so this is a problem. But one of the ways that they try and deal with it is to find out who the pastors are, have them arrested, have them um, interrogated, and all the rest of it. And worse, sometimes um, often actually put to death. And so the government, in order to find out who these guys are, they will put um, some spies in the churches to pretend to become Christians. And sometimes these guys will not only uh, sort of stay around for like a few months, they'll stay around for years with the hope to actually become leaders in these churches so that they'll then have the opportunity to meet leaders of more churches. And this sounds like fantasy stuff, doesn't it? But I can, I can tell you this is for real. Now, obviously, in that situation... When a person says they come to Christ and they say they've become a Christian, you want to know for sure that this is, this is real. This is not um, a fake thing. And so when Paul becomes a Christian, everyone doubts. Understandably, they all think this is, this is rubbish, this is a ruse. But then it says in verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road, Paul had seen the Lord who spoke to him, how at Damascus he, Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. He took a personal risk by befriending Paul, and he risks the lives of all the apostles who were the nerve center of the church by bringing Barnabas along to meet them. He is instrumental at a moment in Paul's life and ministry when, that would make all the difference, would he or would he not be accepted by the church? Would he or would he not have the opportunity to be involved in the spreading of the gospel across the world? Barnabas is crucial to Paul's future ministry. And I don't think he gets the credit for that very often, but it's there in the book of Acts. And he doesn't just do it once, he does it twice. Because later on in chapter 15, ironically, this time, he's in disagreement with Paul. Because what happens is, for, for these few chapters, this thousand miles, these three years, these guys travel together. And along one of their journeys, they bring a man called John Mark. And John Mark, or Mark for short, freaks out on one of the journeys, I assume. And, 
and he, he, he abandons them. And so here they are at the end of chapter 15, and they're starting to plan a new missionary journey. They're going to they're go, go on a new journey. And they disagree. It says they disagree sharply about whether they should bring John Mark with them. Now, Barnabas has a slightly biased opinion because he's actually first cousins with John Mark. So they're related. But I'm sure it's more than that going on here. And so what happens, it tells us that they, they split up. And uh, it says, verse 39, there arose a sharp disagreement, so they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, and, and they go on with their separate missionary journeys. Now, that's a really interesting story, because Barnabas is proved right in the end. Sometimes when, when people flake out, you know, they just don't have the character for stuff. But in this case, Barnabas knew that Mark was going to come good in the end. And he does. In fact, he becomes so significant in the New Testament that later on you can read about Paul calling Mark a kind of co-worker. They, they, they work together. They become reconciled. He's reconciled with Barnabas. And more important still, Mark becomes, along with Paul, one of the authors of the New Testament. He writes Mark's Gospel. Now, isn't that fascinating? That Barnabas, who, who writes nothing in the New Testament, that unless he wrote the book of Hebrews, but we don't know, writes nothing. He is instrumental in at pivotal moments, fulcrum moments in the lives of two other guys, Paul and later Mark. And thanks to Barnabas, this son of encouragement, these guys have a future ministry which they may not otherwise have had. Have you ever met someone like that who people around them just grow up? They get courage. They get faith. Because they're so full of the faith of God, belief in God, belief that God can change lives. Barnabas knew that the gospel worked. That's why he thinks Paul is genuinely saved. Barnabas knew that the gospel worked. That's why he think Mark, thinks Mark can change, even though he's been afraid and abandoned them once. He's not going to do it again. Don't worry. I remember reading a story of um, John Stott. John Stott was the minister of All Souls, the rector of All Souls, for decades in the 20th century, and one of the most important ministers in the country, um, really helped turn the church around, where it was sort of dive-bombing and and, and in many, for many reasons, he was instrumental in helping the, the British church regain its foothold. He became a Christian as a, a, a little a boy at public school. And he used to go to these public school Bible camps, led by a man called John Nash. And John Nash would, would lead these camps, um, which were very deliberately aimed at these public school boys because he thought these guys are going to be future influencers and movers and shakers. And so he'd see a lot of these boys come to faith and John Stott was one of them. And as soon as he came to faith, John Nash began writing letters to him, instructing him in the Christian life. And they weren't just sort of placid, generalism, sort of generalized sort of words of advice and so on. These were, this was real discipleship. This was direct challenges to the boys, tailored to each of them and their specific challenges. Uh, one of the things John Stott says about this is that on occasion when he'd, he'd received these letters, 
it would take him half an hour or more to pluck up the courage to open the letter and read it because this man was so direct with him. And he did it for years. And John Stott went to Oxford, studied theology, became a, a minister, and as I've already told you, really did change the world in, in, some, in various ways. And very, very massively used man of God. But would he have been what he became if it were not for John Nash, there in his boyhood. Can you see how this gift, the son of encouragement, like Barnabas, like John Nash, can have so, much, so many profound effects, ripple effects, when you are the kind of person who is able to see potential in others and speak courage into their life and be instrumental when they're tempted to quit? discipling people, getting alongside someone who's just come to faith and teaching them about what it means to be a Christian in day-to-day practical terms. They may go on to do far more than you've ever imagined. It's the story of every great Christian leader that somewhere in the background was somebody who's kind of an unsung hero who was an encourager in their life. I don't see any reason why that can't be true of all of us. That even if we have very limited gifts... You could be more effective through the people you influence and what they do than what you do. Why not? Let me bring you to the last reason why Barnabas, I think Barnabas is called a son of encouragement. And it's to bring us back to this, the first thing we read about him. And it has to do with his sacrificial devotion. So when we read on in the book, as I've told you, we find a man who is willing to suffer a man who is willing to be persecuted, a man who's willing to travel with no guarantee of the next meal, the next place of stay, a man who is really willing to put his life on the line for the gospel. How do you become that kind of person? I would hope that it's the ambition of every Christian in the room that you would be that kind of person. How do you become that kind of person? And the answer is never, well, it just happens to you overnight. It always, you can trace it back to the beginnings of the story, can't you? I always think that the most interesting thing when you read a biography of Christian people through, through the centuries is actually their formative years, the decisions they made early in life that, that began to have an effect on them in later life. And that's certainly true when we think about Barnabas. Greatness grows. That's what I'm trying to say to you. It always begins somewhere. I think a lot of Christians have this sort of ambition to do something for God and they just imagine that one day they'll just land in it and be doing it. That you'll be the next sort of Jackie Pullinger or the next um, Billy Graham, slightly more ambitious still. And um, the reality is that in the Bible it always shows us that there's always a process of sowing and reaping. You can read the story of any character in the Bible and what you see is that there is a formative years of sowing into character formation and experiences that reaps a difference decades down the line. Very rarely are people propelled into great things in an instant or overnight. And so what did we learn about Barnabas right at the start? What is it that Luke wants us to see about him right at the beginning? And it's this, that He sold a field that belonged to him 
and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. It's a very simple thing, isn't it? I think it's the beginnings of what he would become. I think it's really significant as well that this has to do with finances and it has to do with property and money because you don't have to read far in the Gospels and the teachings of Jesus to realize that probably money is the one thing that can do the most damage to someone's discipleship to Jesus. It's probably the one thing that can most corrupt or kill your faith. Other things can do that, but money is the one that's most likely to. Not because money in itself is evil, but because our hearts turn it into an idol. Which is why Jesus says, Woe to you who are rich, in Luke 6. He's saying that you're in great danger. It's why Jesus called on the rich young ruler, as he's called, to sell everything he has and follow him. And he says he, he went away dismayed. Because Jesus says, if you, he's basically making the point, if you can't sell your goods and follow me, then you don't really care about me above your goods. And he, it was a specific challenge tailored to that man. And it's something that Jesus himself is willing to live out because it's a, he said foxes have holes and bears of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, is, in other words, himself, has nowhere to lay his head. He voluntarily became homeless in order to, to do ministry, in order to, to preach the gospel. And my question to you is, well, if you desire to, if you desire to blaze for God, to be passionately sold out for him, which I, I would hope is the is the desire of every Christian somewhere in your heart. Well, it won't happen by accident. That's what we've got to realize. That it doesn't just happen overnight or accidentally or automatically. It always begins with your trajectory, where you're heading right now. And when you look at the life of Barnabas, you see he made the decisions early on that bore fruit in his later life. So as a younger man, he started to make decisions that said, Jesus, I want to put you first. I love you above everything. And as a result, he was able to put Jesus first when it came to it and he had to travel across sea and land with the gospel. And I want to ask you, this is very personal to you, what decisions should you be making right now that if you don't make you won't be set on the trajectory of discipleship to Christ. What decisions do you need to make right now? What adjustments do you need to make? I think that Barnabas was a son of encouragement for this because can you imagine how exciting it would have been as the apostles to, to talk to people about Jesus and then guys who've never seen him, never laid eyes on Jesus, are so in love with him that they're willing to sell everything they have and follow him. And so they look at him and they think, wow, what an encouraging man to be around. Passion is encouraging, isn't it? When you meet people who who love Jesus like that. One little aside just before we close. In Numbers 18, 
we're told something interesting about Levites. And remember, Barnabas is a Levite. He's from the tribe of Levi. It says in verse 20 that the Lord had said to Aaron, you shall have, Aaron's, by the way, kind of the head of all the Levites. So when he talks to Aaron, he's talking to all the Levites after him. He says, you shall have no inheritance in the land, neither shall you have any portion among them, among the people of Israel. God says, I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. I find that interesting because here's Barnabas, and we don't really know whether he had really much of a passion for God or not before that. Maybe he's like a pastor's kid, like some kids, pastor's kids grow up in pastor's homes, and some of them never have a faith that they call their own. Some of them do, some of them don't. And maybe Barnabas is a bit like that, probably grew up in a religious environment. But, but whatever the case, we know he was a landowner. We know in a way that he wasn't a true Levite because there he was and he had his own field and he wasn't supposed to be a landowner in that sense, except that his field probably was in Cyprus. And finally, in coming to faith in Jesus, Barnabas becomes a true Levite at last. He forsakes earthly property so that he can call God his possession, so that he can have Christ, that he has to let go of what he's treasured on earth so that he can take hold of Christ with both hands and be sold out for Jesus. And I think the challenge is there. It's laid down in front of us all. That to be like Barnabas, to be a son of encouragement, you have to ask, well, what is it that I must do, that I must lay down? If you are not sure that you even would call yourself a Christian or that you are, you're moving towards Christ, I just want to urge you to consider this, that you can never really know what it means to possess all you need until you possess Jesus. That if your life is going to be about earthly things, you will always be in a state of uncertainty. That the things you have cannot last, by definition. But to possess Christ is to possess something eternal, something unchanging, something life-giving. And Barnabas recognized that. He realized that. It's interesting that when Jesus was about to ascend to heaven and he told his apostles, he said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be with you. He said, he called the Holy Spirit the paraclete, which if you remember back, is related to the word paraclesis, encourager. It's the same word, basically. So when we're asking, well, how did Barnabas become this kind of a man? The answer is, the Holy Spirit did it in him. And friends, if you desire, as I hope you do, that you'll be a Someone like him is an armor bearer, a partner in the gospel, that you'll be bold. That you'll be sacrificially devoted in the way that Barnabas was. All these things that we've been looking at, it must come back to, well, are you somebody who has the Holy Spirit in you? To have the Holy Spirit is the birthright of the Christian. He brings about the change in you that you cannot bring about by yourself. Christianity is not about you changing yourself. It's about God coming into your life and bringing about extraordinary transformation by His power. 
And he can do that for you today. Whether or not you call yourself a Christian, he can do it for you today. And Jesus says, if you want the Holy Spirit, you ask. And he says it's as simple as that.